Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Real Deal Talk. Here we go. We've got in the house today. This one's going to be such a unique guest today. I'm fired up. And you guys know I always say that. Yes, I'm always fired up. But we've got Brenna Gebauer in the house today, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. She is a transformational coach and psychedelic facilitator. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me say that again. A psychedelic facilitator, which has to deal with... Um, psychedelics like microdosing of mushrooms yeah microdosing in essence. uh microdosing macrodosing it really has a spectrum so there's a lot we can talk about and dive into not only that we can talk about but they we will talk about because i'm fascinated by this topic we've talked about it on my podcast briefly with a couple other guests like i have several friends that are doing this mm. that swear by it and I've been it's right now studying it, so I'm fascinated, Brenna. And by the way, guys, you know how I do it. I kind of get to know my guests on the fly where I, I don't really know much about you. At, actually, I don't know anything about you. In fact, <laughs> she was a customer at Real Deal Sleep, which I'm now going to segue into the sponsor of the show who's paying the bills around here, Real, Real Deal Sleep. In fact, Brenna has supported the show indirectly. Mm. Her and her husband um, have Adam, right? Correct. Have uh, bought a one of our game changing natural latex posh and lavish sleep, zero gravity sleep systems. Which, by the way, again, if you want to support the show financially, Real Deal Sleep is paying the bills around here. RealDealSleep.com. We have a custom fitting program. If you have any type of sleep issues, if you or your partner snores, has apnea, reflux, GERD, we can help with that. Brennan, and her husband uh, bought one of my best sleep systems, mm-hmm. which is going to be zero gravity, sleeping with elevation. My wife and I have not slept flat in 10 years. So you and your husband are not going to sleep flat for the rest of your life. We're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. See, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, RealDealSleep.com. And by the way, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for all the comments. Thank you for when I'm walking around in public for coming up to me and giving me feedback. I'm telling you right now, I can't get enough because I, there's times where I'm like, gosh, am I, are we making a difference here? Is anybody even listening or paying attention? And then when you guys DM me or come up to me at church or wherever I'm at in the gym and tell me, hey, man, I really love the podcast. Please keep it coming because and it's not because it's going to feed my ego, right? Yes, I have an ego, but it's for me because all I want to do every day I wake up is make an impact on the kingdom and make an impact on the world. That's very just a positive thing. That's all I want to do. It's all that drives me. So when you guys give me feedback that what I'm doing here, you're actually enjoying and 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 kind of uh, benefit by, uh, from it and getting something from it and being inspired by it. That is everything for me that keeps me motivated, keeps me moving forward and keeps me doing this, keeps me waking up early on a Tuesday morning to come in and shoot before we open the business. So guys, I can't thank you enough. Please share the show. Leave comments, leave, do a review if you can, because that's going to keep me going here. I can't thank you enough. So back to Brenna Gebauer. I love that name. <laughs> I love Gebauer. It does have a ring to it's it. It's a great ring. All right. Yeah. So before we get into, before we start tripping on mushrooms, let's, um, let's go back to your, let's go back to your backstory a little bit. You know how I do it. Actually, you don't know how sure. to do it, but I'm going to tell you, we're okay. going to go, we're going to, we're going to dig into your backstory a little bit. So Brenna, go back a little bit here. Um, and where were you born and raised? Let's start there. Yeah. So I am from Outside of Redding, California, which is in Shasta County, which is the part of Northern California that most Californians don't know exists. Yeah, I've never heard of it. So think of Sacramento and the Oregon border 
and I'm halfway in between. Ah, okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I can visualize that. All right. So tell me about childhood. You were uh, only child, brother, sisters. How was the family life? How were the parents? Sure. I love all these questions. Yeah. Um, so I come from a nuclear family. I am the oldest of two. My brother's 17 months younger than me. And it was, I mean, small town living. Yeah. I grew up in very rural community. My, uh, my hometown was less than 10,000 people. And I don't believe that there was an escalator in my county oh, outside of like the, the elevators in the, in the jail. So like in the hospital. Yeah. So we're talking like everybody knows each other. And simultaneously, my dad was like the local butcher. And it was just one of those things where I was raised in an area where you got to know the land and you got to know each other and you were part of a community. And I deeply appreciated that because it still stays with me. Uh, so to answer like, how is my childhood? Yeah. How, I how was many people did you say in the, in the town? Less than 10,000. Less than 10,000. And your dad was, did I catch this right? He was the butcher? He was, I was raised in a butcher shop. Shut up. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't think of it now, but I didn't know anything any different, right? So he would just take me to work at the, the local grocery store and then we would be in the meat department and I'd walk into these freezers that were filled with the deer that people had brought in for him from hunting. So it was just a very different lifestyle than I think how most people yeah. orient to, but also it gave me an appreciation of knowing where my food came from, wow. which I think a lot of us are disconnected from at well, this you, point. You think just a little bit maybe? Yeah. I think we're going to go down that today for some reason. <laughs> but yeah, think about it because now mm -hmm. nobody even thinks or questions for the most part. And that's this is what our system wants, by the way. Yeah. They don't want us actually thinking, wait a minute, where's this food coming from? Mm -hmm. Or who's making it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're going to go down there, I can tell. <laughs> so the butcher, what's his name? Or what? My dad's name is John. John, yay. yay. And That's he actually calls my real him, name. Yeah, I saw the tattoo. And he oh, calls yeah. himself the legend. Cut, stop it. <laughs> He's a Vietnam stop vet. It. So yeah, he... <laughs> He's a character. So nobody else called him the legend? No, he, he called is self-proclaimed. <laughs> Where does he live? He still lives he in still Reading. He still lives there? <laughs> My whole family still lives there. Hey, so do you think he'll listen to this podcast? I hope so. Yeah. John, this is JD, fellow legend. Yes. I, I see you, bro. Yeah. I love that you call yourself the legend. I'm looking forward to meeting you. The legend. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. love this. No, it's great. My my parents are amazing humans, and they wanted so, to- Sorry. Sorry to cut you yeah. off, but I wanted to, real quick, you said nuclear family. Nuclear family. I know what that is, but for the listeners and watchers that have no idea what you're talking about, describe what nuclear family is. Nuclear family means your mom and dad were never divorced. They were not separated. It was just like the nuclear family of my mom, my dad- Yep. My brother and I. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And does nuclear stand for, is it nucleus? Like the, or no? I haven't done the backstory yeah. on what, but that makes sense yeah, yeah. of what it would be, okay, even though it. that kind of has a weird connotation. It does. Too. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Curious. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. So um, I think points of interest. I was raised in the church, uh, mm. evangelical. My family is very steeped in their faith. And that was very foundational for me as far as like, uh, a lot of the ideas that I was raised into, which a part of it, I, I still hold on to very deeply. I think faith is one of the things that like gives us hope and it's so important. Uh, and simultaneously, I was also one of those kids that really didn't have um, 
constant helicoptering, right? Yeah. I was a kid that got to go out and play in nature. And that was a huge part of my my relationship with Earth and watching things like caterpillars going to a butterfly in a yeah. season. And, and so I think that those were two pillars that created the foundation of how I oriented to the world. Right. Uh, and the other thing that I think has been really foundational in that is uh, an awareness of feeling safe, you know, yeah. because in, in that sort of uh, cocoon for me, I witnessed people that would, you know, constantly engage with each other without knowing each other and just like want to be part of a community. I think that's one of the things that the church can be really powerful yes, around for sure. and small towns simultaneously. So those things have deeply impacted the way that I have seen myself in this world. And so to give people context, what, your childhood, like what age, were you know, what year was this? I was born in 1981. Okay, so you're exactly 10 years younger than me. Yeah. Um, okay, so just so people understand that this is the 80s yes. because you're talking about stuff that you got the new age listeners that have no idea what you're talking about. Wait, interaction? <laughs> Hold yeah. on. Like it, playing outside? What, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. yeah, they, don't, they literally don't even know what it means now unless they're now on an e-bike. Sure. Right, this is the thing. All right, we're not going to go down. But the point is I wanted them to give a frame of reference here. So so tell me about, um, you said nuclear family. Now, the relationship between your parents, phenomenal. What, what did they show you on a daily, weekly, monthly? Were they like everything was... Yeah, my my dad, I would say the thing that he demonstrated is he was like a hard worker. He mm -hmm. always showed up. My mom was super charismatic and loving. She... You know, I know that both my parents wanted the best for my brother and I, and they did everything they could to provide it. And uh, I look at that and I feel very grateful that I can even say that uh, yeah. about yeah. my childhood. Uh, and simultaneously, there was the things that I'm still dismantling around, maybe not following the path that was yeah. set forward that you do these things and yeah. this is the expectation. But uh, I'm grateful to be at a place in a time in my life where there can be conversations around it with yeah. my my family and i hope to dive into that a little bit in this podcast Which around uh this particular the nature of what i do yeah. and how that has played into my relationship with my family and how that has been very transformational as well and so now um when did you move out of that uh town as soon as i could <laughs> <laughs> so four. I, my birthday's in July. So I turned 18 in July. Yeah. I graduated high school in like end of May, June, and I was gone. Gone. As fast as I could. I moved to the nearest big town to to see the world and it, to grow up. Yes. <laughs> Quote unquote. Quote unquote. All right. So in your childhood, did you do any sports, any dance? Mm -hmm. what, give me some activities that you did. Totally. My uh, soccer was my vehicle. Oh, in yeah. fact, there was a tremendous amount of expectation and pressure that that was going to put me through college. Oh, wow. So my dad was my coach and everything else I did was around. Hold on, hold on. You mean the legend was the your coach? The legend. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, he's gonna love this. He's gonna love it. He's gonna eat it up and good. He deserves that. He does. Yeah. So, everything I did was around being a very skilled athlete. Mm, so, okay. outside of soccer season, I would run track or swim. It was all about, uh, being an athlete in that way, yeah. which was great. And simultaneously, I didn't really have the opportunity to explore other parts of myself. I, I have spent most of my life thinking I'm not a creative person mm. because I couldn't play an instrument or you know, I wasn't in these like, like drama club or something like that, even right. though I wanted to be. Yeah. But it took time away from me being an athlete. 
so I didn't get to explore those parts of me until later in life. And so did did your parents or dad, uh, sorry, the legend, did the legend tell you exactly why he was having you do sports? Like, did he explain to you why? Or was it just to be a good athlete? Or was it what came with it? Did he, and I'm, and I'm curious, I've never actually asked this question as it's yeah. coming out of my mouth, because now with my daughter and my son, I'm starting to explain to them why they're in sports. Because in my opinion, there's no better training or school for a child mm. than activity like then especially organized team sports because you learn team anyway so did he ever explain or you just thought oh i just he just wants me a good athlete i don't know if he knew mm. and i i believe that uh there may be, have been a part of it that was like living the life that he didn't get yeah as a child and being able to witness that through me uh i am a thousand percent in agreeance with you around yep. being in activities that involve a team is such a supportive endeavor yep. and to be part of camaraderie right? right and to lift each other up and to be able to form those sorts of connections and trust so yep. whether that was explained to me i know that my dad was a really amazing coach and i think that that has influenced my desire to yeah. work in coaching is wow. to witness somebody who was deeply invested in not just me as his daughter, but all of the other players on the team and continuously educating himself to be able to show up in a way where he could support us to be a team together wow. and better athletes. That's great. And so you said he shows up. Was there ever like he just made it happen no matter what he showed up? Totally. Work, coaching, Still to this day. To this day. I mean, he's almost eighty and he I know my dad will show up. Yeah. To the How best of his that? ability. It's it's amazing. I mean, like I I especially in the nature of what I do, I see so many people that had parents that did not mm. show up for them. And I know how impactful that is on how we view ourselves in this world. So to be able to say that even just in this conversation, you know, I can feel my heart getting all juicy and yeah. it's really lovely. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that we touched on this. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Because the legend gets another shout out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's never enough. Like I said in the beginning of the podcast, it's it's never enough. We we need to hear it. Totally. Like if we're making an impact or if we've had an impact on a life in a positive way, let us hear about it. And Absolutely. So we're letting the legend hear about it. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about mom a little bit. Yeah. Um, mom was the a great uh, partner, everything just phenomenal. You said she was charismatic. Oh, yeah. What did so, you get from her? Like, what's the main thing you picked up from mom? I, well, I, uh, there's a lot I picked up from both of my parents, and I want to tell a little bit of their backstory. Please, please. Because my yeah. dad was born and raised in the same small town that I was born and raised he in. He was? Wow. Yeah. And uh, then my mom is from Massachusetts and Irish Catholic. And she left and drove across the country in a VW bus and ended up living in Haight-Ashbury circa 1969. Oh, wow. And dad was in the Vietnam War. And then they met each other and had kids. So. <laughs> and how did they meet? Uh, the story goes like this. Uh, my parents were at, I guess, like a small hotel nightclub in Reading, and my mom liked my dad's legs and asked him to dance. Liked his legs? Was he wearing shorts in the I don't club? No, that's a great question. I have not asked. John, John, we need, John, we need some details here, bro. So when you hear this podcast, I need to know this answer. Were you wearing? How did she know that he had good legs? 
if he I would not be surprised if he was wearing shorts. It was the late 70s. <laughs> Are you is that what they wore in the 70s? I, I didn't know that's this when they had those, you know, like what, the like the basketball shorts. Yeah, I don't know. But I will ask. This is a question I will explore more. She, so that's the story she gives is that he had nice legs. Yes. So I don't you can't be in a club with shorts, though. Andy, do you go to a club with shorts on? Is this possible? It is. It He's is. wearing shorts right now. Oh, that's true. He's shooting, <laughs> he's shooting the podcast in shorts. How weird. Now that I'm looking at this, this is totally bizarre. Oh, look, at, look at you. Well, you're, some... a, you're an arm guy, though. Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> in fact, is this arm? Can you see this right now? Can you see that? Is it looking good in the camera? Forget the guest and forget my face. The arm looks good. Okay, good. You can see the bicep vein right here. Okay, anyway, look back back to the show. Um, yeah. Enough about my arm. Um, yeah, you got to put some clothes on, Andy. I don't know about this shooting in shorts. Now, now I'm becoming aware of it. <laughs> All right, anyway. The legend met his the wife it, with his legs. He, he is so. going he, he to eat this podcast up. I'm going to call him legend like 50 times in this interview. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, I need, I like, I need to know this right away. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm dying to know. How did she know he had good legs? Uh, Nothing you, else. Do not you want to call my parents right now and ask? Oh my gosh, would that be? <laughs> would that be? Would that be a riot? That would be a riot. Maybe we will at the end. Maybe yeah. we'll we'll put him on the phone. Yeah. Um. But uh, not, so not the arms, not his face, the not that legs. he was good looking. Yeah, the legs. She didn't mention anything about his looks. The it has the story has always been the legs. And what does he say to this? Is he like fired up? Yeah, you know, I have some good legs. What does he say? He is, he, he's very much like John Wayne. Imagine that. Well, I mean, he's you a know, legend. So. Uh, but like, so things just, he receives them and kind of. Did he have good legs? Do you yeah, remember this? Yeah. I mean, he has Was good legs. Was it genetic or did he work on them? I like my legs too. <laughs> so you, if it is genetic, I'm grateful. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if he had to work on them because most guys, most don't work on their legs. They just work their upper body and that's it. Right. Well, this is a different time in life. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he would like, you know, ride bicycles Mm. and do nature. Yeah. Maybe it was a bicycle thing. And yeah, like being the workouts that I grew up with were not in it indoors. Mm. They were all outdoors. Ah, Everything was outdoors. And that's, I think, a very different vantage point for a lot of people. All right, so back to the original point of him. She wanted him to dance. Yes. Okay, so that's how they met. Yes. And then what happened from there? They just... And then they, I guess, dated for about 18 months, got married. They shotgunned across the country and got married in the Old North Church. My mom got married in a green velvet two-piece suit. What? Yeah. Your mom did? Yeah. <laughs> so um, she do we had- have pictures of this? I do. Oh, I, my gosh. I do. Yeah. And so when you ask about- I like, need pictures of his shorts and I need pictures of this green velvet suit. This may be- prime information for this podcast people are going to need to know (laughs) i'm not the only one that wants to know this right now i can tell the listeners and viewers right now they want to know yeah okay i would too green velvet suit velvet yeah so what was she thinking i that's another question i have not asked but here's the thing (laughs) when you asked about the like the influence of my mom my mom has always kind of like beaten to her own drum yes her expression of herself and her willingness to just like be in her own essence i give her a lot of credit for it and the other thing is i truly believe like 
my mom wants to see the best in everybody. She is the type of person that, you know, when she walks around the neighborhood, she knows all the neighbors and knows everything about them. And, yeah. you know, well, when it was Christmas a couple of years ago, and here I am living the life that most of us in Southern California live, and we're just taking a walk, and they're like, let's just go knock on this neighbor's door on Christmas and sing them a Christmas carol. And I was oh like, my gosh. what? And we did. And then they invited us into the no house way. and gave us coffee. And, like this was three years ago. This is not another time in yeah, life. Yeah, this doesn't happen. So it does. It's not normal. <laughs> but those attributes your mom. of my parents have, I think, influenced me in positive ways. And so, it, and the reason we're kind of going through this story a little bit here, and I'm having, we're going uh, a little bit more details because I really want to to see the way this plays out in your life and to see how important it is, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got, if you're blessed enough to have children, how important it is in the home, because what you're showing your children is what matters, mm -hmm. not what you're telling them. It's what you're showing them in the relationship that you have with your significant other, your husband or your wife. They see that. So you can tell them all you want, but if if they don't see a connection, if they don't see the love, the passion, right? So would you say that the connection that your parents had would you, was was profound that had a big impact on you? Uh yeah, definitely. And you know, I my parents also modeled play. Yeah. Which I think was really important is having a a playful relationship and they you could tell that they cared about each other. Uh, so the dynamics that I witnessed, although I think they fit into a specific paradigm of what a relationship should look like, yeah. it was a very healthy one for me to be modeled. And I really do appreciate the fact that you are, you know, making that a very important point is yeah. it's it's modeling it, not saying this is how it's supposed to be. Right. I and love that. That's huge. And what's your mom's name? Linda. Linda. So the legend and Linda. Mm -hmm. Linda, shout out to you, mom. Nice job. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I give you credit, um, mm -hmm. Brenna, for knocking on a stranger's door. <laughs> I still do. You do? Oh, yeah. Still to this day. With her? Not with her, even in life. Like, I have no, I, oh, I have no problem. One of my favorite things and this is like weird. A lot of people think this is weird yeah. is sitting on the middle seat in planes. I actively choose the middle seat. Oh, that's horrible. And it's not. I'll tell you why. Well, for me, it's right. I can't. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm sitting Indian style in this tiny yeah, little chair. I'm, I'm in I don't, pain watching you. <laughs> I don't take up much space in that regard. And I don't mind being in the middle seat. But it also gives me the opportunity to know two new people yeah. instead of just one. Wow. And I've already taken one of the like decisions that they don't want to make, which is being in the middle seat <laughs> True. off the table. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really, it That's makes amazing. it it's super fun. Like, I have spent Christmas with people I've met on planes before and bamboozled engagements at dinner tables. I, those things for me, as much as they seem very out of yeah. the box, I it's a deep desire to get to know people. Wow. I love that. I, I this is why I have the podcast because I'm fascinated mm -hmm. by people. Yeah, me too. By the way, she's you're sitting in Indian style, right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at you sitting in Indian style, and like I'm in pain watching this. I I, I don't know if can, Andy, can you get into Indian style? Can you even uh, manage that? You you can. I can't. <laughs> or and if I did, I'd it'd be like eight seconds before everything fell asleep. I all might be tingling. Anyway, I just want to note that. I know it's a, 
<laughs> I know my guests wanted to know that, so I wanted to touch on that topic real quick. All right, yeah. go, let's get back to the uh, um, back to the parents. Okay, the parents. So parents now sports. So did you like sports? Did you embrace it? Tell me about that with dad. Like, yeah, I I loved sports. I mean, I loved being active. I still love being active. So uh, whether I had much choice in it. That's a different conversation. You know, there was definitely a fair amount of expectation. And I was also very good at it. Mm. And it felt good to be skilled at something. Right. And the other thing that I think soccer provided for me, because I definitely was raised with the idea, and I think part of this comes into our culture and religion is the good girl, Mm. right? Being the good girl. Right. And so. Athletics, especially soccer, is probably one of the most uh, physical female sports at that time. Yep. Gave me an opportunity to be very physical. And it was an emotional release. Yeah, so like a little so, outlet. Oh, yeah, it was huge. And I I mean, I was definitely, I used it as an outlet. Aggressive. You were aggressive. <laughs> I was aggressive on the field, yeah. So your dad loved that, huh? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. That's so funny because my, my daughter, when she was in soccer, mm-hmm. I couldn't get her to be aggressive. She just didn't care. Dance, that's her thing. Sure. Like she's a beast, but it was just interesting that she was the opposite. Um, but anyway, going back now, did you feel, you said you you didn't necessarily have a choice. Mm-hmm. So he just say, you're doing this, this sport too, whether you like it or not, or no, just, hey, we're gonna do this sport. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Uh, I think I was maybe like 11 and I tried out for a local play and it was going to be at the county fair. So you can imagine this is a big deal. Oh, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and I got the lead role. And I got so excited that I went to a payphone, which a lot of people may not know a too. Payphone. And I called my parents and I told them. And my dad was like, well, that's going to interfere with soccer practice. And I was 11. Yeah. Right. But here I, in- I-, I know his heart was in the right place. Yeah. And simultaneously, then I went back and I said, I can't take the lead. I'm going to miss too many practices. And someone else got the lead in yeah. the play. So I- it wasn't like a direct thing. But then I internalized this as an 11-year-old as this is how it is. Mm, got it. Interesting. Um, and dad, heart was in the right place, right? 100%. Yeah. Because when you're committed to something, I know where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. When you commit to something, you you commit. You're there. Totally. And uh, that's one thing that we actually with with uh, Jacqueline and Johnny, my, my kids, the same thing. Like when you commit to something, we see it through no matter what. Yeah. And we do our best. All right. So keep going. Um, the relationship between you and your brother. How is that going? I uh, how is it going? growing up? No, growing, growing up. up like, yeah. uh, we were really close up until a certain point. And uh, I think that point kind of happened maybe when I was in eighth grade, something like that. And I think it turned into my brother was much more timid because I was not, Mm. right? I was the very outgoing child. I was the athlete. And so he was much more reserved and more quiet, still is to this day. I mean, if you can think of the archetype that you are making assumptions about who I am in this world, think the opposite. And that's generally how my brother shows up. And I'm not saying that is like a positive or a negative by yep. any stretch of the right. imagination. It's just like the attributes of the older and younger sibling. And so you said you were pretty close up till 
I think there's a, a big developmental stage that happens, yeah. you know, around eighth grade yep. for yeah. kids where they start having their own identity right. and moving outside of uh, this is my family and this is how things are. And I think uh, there were also things that happen. Uh, you know, I was severely bullied oh, in you were? school. Yeah, no I was kidding. severely bullied. I What age did that start? It started right around like sixth and seventh grade. So and it started so, then. Yeah. So I switched schools a couple of times. The first time was I think in like fourth grade and I went from a private Christian school to a public school. You were bullied in private Christian school? <laughs> I wasn't, I, not that I remember. Yeah. I remember I was not like the other kids though because I would come to school in homemade clothes and that was just not what most kids came to school in. and it wasn't that we didn't have the money to clothe me, it's that I preferred to make my own clothes. Yeah. So uh, then when I switched into another school and what's interesting about this story and, and the human psyche is I thought about this a few years ago and I was like, mom and dad, why did why did you switch schools in the middle of eighth grade? Like the middle of a, a school year is a yeah. weird time to switch. And I fully thought that it was because of my brother. <clears throat> and my parents told me it was because I was getting bullied and I completely have blocked all of that out of my memory. No kidding. And they shared with me that like other students would come over to the store that was like right next to the school and and they would say, Brenna's getting bullied in the bathroom really badly. We're concerned for her. And then I would come home and I would just sit in silence and I would not tell my parents what was going on. And so I'm grateful that they made the decision to pull me out of school. But also in that, my brother transferred schools as well. Yeah. So, you know, because of the situation that I they were supporting me in, he also uprooted his friend group. And mm. I think that must have had a tremendous impact on him as well. So you said it started around sixth grade. Yeah. And then do you, do you know why? Like what, what was it about you or that, that all of a sudden you started, like do you, do you know any triggers mm, of it? Well, coming from a private school, my education was definitely accelerated. So yeah. I was that precocious kid that was just like, I have the answer. I have the answer. Yep, yep, and so then yep. because I had I, probably a year in advance, I would be like tutoring other students. And at that point, being smart wasn't really... No, it wasn't cool. It wasn't a cool attribute. And simultaneously, I, you know, I was like a barefoot kid that was wild, you know, like I was a wild child that liked to be in nature and probably didn't show up like the normal kids did. Yeah. And you know, the whole idea of soccer, like I think this was also a big catalyst is, uh, oh, I tried out for cheerleading is what happened. And I could also do gymnastics. So I could do like back handsprings across yeah. the entire floor. But even with that, I was not picked for the team. I was one of two kids that was not picked. So yeah. it was just like, it was very specific that I was not, the culture was not supportive of who I was. And so my parents made the choice to help me switch schools. Yeah. So like if you look at that whole situation, that means twice in my education through, you know, middle school, I started new friend groups from scratch, not knowing anybody. And as much as I look at the challenges of that, I think it was a beautiful adaptation for me to yeah. be able to shift in, in different ways. And also I think a huge part of it has made me super compassionate. You know, wow. even for people who maybe don't have the same things in their life that feel like they're my interests, I really want to be interested and, and get to know other people's stories because feeling like you belong, 
and feeling included in something is a huge part huge. of safety and security. Huge. Now, do you remember getting bullied? You said you blocked it out, but do you remember getting bullied at all? Vaguely. Like Vaguely. I have tiny little snippets and that's where I think the human brain is really a powerful thing is it protects us yeah. from these really foundational times. So, uh Maybe one day that part of me will be, be ready to be seen. It gets stirred up and come out. Yeah. Yeah. And if it does, I'm ready for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'll, it'll be, it'll, it's meant to happen if it does mm -hmm. or, or it's meant to happen when it does. Right. Yeah. And so, and so you don't really remember getting bullied. You not, don't remember it being a thing. Not really, but I remember how I felt. Yeah. I remember not feeling accepted. And at that time, I very much remember internalizing it. And thinking it was about me, mm. that I was not like everybody else, or I should be like this. And it's understandable, the desire to feel like you right. belong. In, it's yeah. tribal, you know, yes. in, in all of us. And so I remember internalizing all of that and questioning, like, should I be different than myself? And I think that's very damaging, hmm. but simultaneously, you know, we're developing our identity at these ages. Right. And so uh, I, I look at it and I, I have curiosity about how much it influenced me. And simultaneously, you know, like I said, I had a mother that was very much living in her essence in a lot of ways. So I yeah. had that modeling as well. And so how, do, how did you get so, let's call it earthy and making your own clothes and barefoot? Like how did, was that your mom's influence? No, my dad, who was born and raised, same town, yeah. his parents were also the same. So we're talking about multi-generations living in the same area. And my grandma was one of 13. Wow. And so when my parents were at work, my grandma raised me. And so my grandma raised me ah. in that way. You know, I mean, I would like wash clothes on a washboard and then hang them out to dry. And we would make all of our own food and can things and go to the <clears throat> fabric store and get fabric and uh and figure out how to make a dress with a pattern. So it was just like this this way of being in the world that I think was not passed down to a lot of people yeah. that I was gifted through that relationship. With your grandma? Yeah. So the grandma is pretty much responsible for that for, mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Oh, I, I count my blessings all the time. I still consider her my angel. You know, she was very foundational in a lot of how she showed me how to be in this world for beautiful things and for you know some of the attributes that I am looking to dismantle around the female archetype as well. So yeah. it's kind of the both end. Ah, no kidding. Like in what way with a female? So uh, I believe that when we look at how our generations have evolved, um, you know, my grandmother being one of 13, she very much has attributes of like the caretaker. Yep. And also simultaneously, she did not have a healthy relationship with my grandfather and her defense mechanism is fawning. Mm. So most people know fight, flight or freeze. Yes. Fawning is not talked about. But fawning is really when you don't feel like you have the capacity to get out of a situation. What you do is everything you can to make the thing that makes you feel unsafe love you. Wow. So that, and that shows up often in relationships. Uh, Stockholm syndrome would be like an example of it. But if you yeah. actually look at it, there's a lot more fawning going on that's not talked about in relationship dynamics that helps people feel safe. I think you're, I know you're spot on with this. Yeah. I think it's so very, very common. Mm -hmm. 
And I know right when you said it, I know people in my life that mm-hmm. are fawning. Oh, yeah. Right now. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying it's. Uh, uh, so I believe that that attribute is something that comes from the idea of like, here's what marriage looks like. And then the I think the generation that maybe you came from yeah. is make it look good on the outside. Right. Everything's yep, yep, okay. Yep. And and so I think that's where fawning falls into some of the patterns that we see in yep. relationship dynamics. Yep, totally. Um, wow. Okay, so this this is really cool. Um, so keep going, keep going with the whole uh, dynamic of. Let's go back to um, when you when you change schools. You said the dynamic between you and your brother changed. Mm-hmm. Was that the big reason? Because he had to move or you just didn't even know at that point? You'd have to ask him. You know, I finally got yeah. accepted, yeah. right? Like I went to a school and got accepted. And then I was really externally focusing my relationships on making friends yeah. because I hadn't had friends for so long. So I, um, you know, I think that there are certain parts of my mom, yeah. right? My mom leaves the home when she's 18, drives across the country. Yep. Then I turn 18 and leave and start my life. Whereas my brother still lives yeah. in gotcha. the same small town yep. and he's building a family. So you can kind of see the patterns of the family dynamic Got at it. play there. And so when you made that move in the, it was it eighth grade, mm-hmm. that's it. Bullying stopped. You opened up, you were accepted. But totally. And, and then, you know, going from middle school to high school. It was like a major developmental shift. And in high school, I was a very strong athlete. And that goes a long way. Yeah. You know, in acceptance. This was high school. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Once you're, once you're, uh, back in my day, they call it jock. Yeah. Yeah. Like you were like it. Like you were very popular people just, so you're exactly right with that. So soccer was the main thing in high mm-hmm. school as well. Oh yeah. For any, sure. other, any other sports in high school? Everything that I did outside of soccer was for soccer. So like track and track, field, cross yeah. country, yeah. swim team, all of those things. And then high school, um, what, uh, you, were you counting the minute? Do you know you were going to leave the town? Like, I actually left high school my senior year to go to college. That's how, how quickly I was ready to <laughs> eject. Yeah. <laughs> I just like knew I wanted to explore things. And I, I looked at the senior year as like, this is a waste of my time. We're taking all these elective classes. So I opted to do a college program to help me start getting college credits. Wow. And then, go, sorry, I'm, I want to go back to the grandma thing. So the grandma thing, the way she was raising, I'm so fascinated by that. Yeah. That's, did your parents know, like, were they cool with the way you were being kind of um, raised by grandma? Like yeah, the- I, I, I think that they were so grateful for the support. Yeah, and yeah, I have some. I should have brought my photo albums to you because, like, I have pictures of me in middle school, and I certainly was allowed to dress however I wanted for school yeah. picture day. So <laughs> you can see it in the pictures. Oh my god! Uh, and also, like. I really want to give you the lay of the land of what it's how small yeah. my bubble was. So my middle school was right next to the fence that was my grandma's house. And then there was a trail through a field that went to the store that my parents worked at. It's that close. It was that close. And these are like, you know, dirt roads and fields and such. So I'm very small town. And so, and guys, I keep hitting on this because it's so powerful to talk about where how we were raised mm-hmm. and how uh, powerful programming is because mm-hmm. this is all programming mm-hmm. here and you're like whoever's in you if, if your parents that work both of you work 
and you either have another family member or let's say a nanny who's not blood related rate, basically raising your kids because the majority of the day that's being raised by someone else. Mm-hmm. This is important to pay attention to. Right. And oh, I, yeah. Because I just talked about this yesterday. I, I threw out a thing on my, on my, I'm on TikTok now. My daughter's like making fun of me. Dad, really, dad? Like, anyway, the point is I put out there how in, in our lifetime as parents, we will be with our kids a total of 19 years. Mm. That's the average. Yeah. And that's including the 18 where you're under the same roof. 19 total years we're with our children. That means from the time of 19 years old for the rest of our lives, it's a total of one year. Yeah. Think about that. Now yeah. we're talking about if you add up all the days, Andy, you hear this, Andy? So this, I just heard this statistic and I'm, I'm blown away by it. 19 total years. So remember those first 18 that you have blessed, that you have them under your same roof, take advantage of mm-hmm. those 18 years, right? So anyway, just, that's why I'm kind of stamping this in on how great yeah. this story is that grandma, luckily you were blessed that you had this amazing grandma that did a great job of programming and it wasn't a negative thing yeah right there i mean there's like i said attributes that i'm unlearning about myself through and and here's all the programming you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. so um when adam and i met one of the first questions he asked me is what are you learning right now and my answer was it's not about what i'm learning it's about what i'm unlearning (laughs) no kidding because i feel that there is so much that we have absorbed about who we are in this world yeah And as much as we can want to continue to learn more information, it also keeps us from questioning if what we have already learned is true for us now. Wow. Okay, keep going with that. So, I mean, like the, uh, I think a lot of this, and and this is where what I do now professionally is very different from what I did before, is I started looking at myself through the lens of how much of who I have created an identity around is really my true nature. And I quickly found that the answer was no. And then I was in this social conundrum of what do I do? Like I have, this is my identity. This is my profession. These are all the external things that society has told me I am in this world. And now I'm looking at myself and I'm realizing that that's actually not in alignment at all. Yeah. And so it's the idea of, is my outside world in harmony with my internal landscape? And if the answer is no, then it's no surprise that you are suffering from anxiety, depression, dis-ease. There's a lot of attributes that come from it. And so that's when I started shifting the lens and looking inward. It made me realize how much of who I saw myself as in the world was coming from the outside in. Wow. Okay. So that this is where we're going we're gonna to segue. We're, we're going to keep going with this because this is powerful stuff. Yeah. Because everybody... Mm-hmm is so um, everything's dictated on how we're seen, the ego, right? How we're perceived, how we're supposed to act, but we're not actually, right? A thousand percent. So keep going with the whole anxiety because we're at a point in our society where even children are are like countless children have anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, suicidal thoughts, committing suicide. Yeah. And if you look at the timeline for a lot of these things, social media is attributed to a huge amount of it. And I think the fact that we are now connected in such a way where we are in comparison with other people at a rate that we've never been at before, it is also, you can look at the correlation of what's going on with mental health. And we are fast tracking that. And social media has a lot of benefits as well. But I think we need to 
I feel that one of the greatest things that we can work on to heal as a society is starting with loving ourselves. Mm. And that can really be escalated uh, by getting to know ourselves through our own lens of who we are and not through the lens of who other people have told us we are in this world. And so that's where the unlearning came in for me is when I really started to get yep. to know myself, I started to see where these ideas of who I was came from. And we, at different stages and ages in our life, don't have the same toolkit we have now, but we pick up things that help us to navigate at that time. So like going back to the bullying, yep. right? And so the questions I started asking myself were to try and fit in. And so maybe I started picking up characteristics to try and fit in that weren't really who I am, but they were adaptations for acceptance. And I believe that that happens for many of us throughout our entire life. And I'm not saying that acceptance isn't important, but if you are sacrificing yourself to be accepted by another, really at a soul level, you are abandoning who you are. Yep. And so that's where the unlearning started for me. And so tell me, can you give me some examples of stuff that you had to unlearn? Sure. Uh, Keep diving here. This is so beautiful. when I went to college for my degree was in psychology mm. and because I'm fascinated with, with people. And then I got out into the real world and got a real job that looked really good on paper. Yes. And I started checking all of the boxes. It was like, climb the corporate ladder, make this much money, live in this place, have this sort of lifestyle. And uh, I started realizing at a certain point that something was very much missing. And that was my relationship with myself. And in exploring that, I had often been what I would consider to be very alpha, very alpha. Yeah. If I saw a door and I wanted that door opened, I would get through that door no matter what. And often in that process, it was a tremendous amount of energy and I'd get to the other side and I'd be like, ah, well, that was a lot for what? So uh, I realized that I was living very much in like yang energy, yeah. uh, the do. I was a big doer. Yep. And as I started to get to know myself more, I realized, and human design was another huge part of it, is recognizing that I am much softer than the way I was living. And this probably even goes back to athletics, mm. right? Yeah. And so I had this idea of me and I needed to be dominant. I needed to be assertive. I needed to be all of these things. And really... It was not my true nature. Mm. It's not that I don't have the capacity to do that, but I was really unbalanced in the way that I was holding it. And so I started, you know, having trust in other people was a huge part of it. Like, I don't have to do it all myself. And what if I was to allow other people to support me instead of me always being the one supporting everybody else? Yeah, yeah. And so that was a huge dismantling of an idea of who I was in this world. And my life has changed dramatically because of it. And did you have anxiety and stuff built up around this? Did that ever happen to you? So when I started uh, working with plant medicine is when a lot of this happened for me. And there was a point- How, how long ago was this? This was probably eight or nine years eight ago. Eight or nine, okay. Yeah, and there was a point in all of this, and it probably happened five years into that process, 
that I realized that the career I had built for myself was not going to be the right thing for me to align myself with for this next chapter of my life. And it was really hard to reckon that piece because like I said, it was my identity. I had built this thing that was a tremendous amount of ego right. that was built into it. Yeah. And so when I would talk to other people about what I was thinking about doing, what I was getting from external sources was, don't do that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was listening to myself, I was getting a very different answer that felt true. It felt clear. It felt absolute. It didn't need to be rationalized. I didn't need other people's feedback. And so this external world was showing me one thing and this internal world was showing me something else. And in that process, I went through so much anxiety. I was testing off the charts. I was seeing multiple mental health professionals. And what they wanted to do was put me on pills. Of course. And I knew that there was a root cause that I wanted to get to, but I didn't feel like the life I was currently living was going to allow me the capacity to do it in a way which was going to be authentic. Mm. So I went through what I would call, you know, a quarter life crisis or a, of sorts or midlife. I don't know what you want to call it, yeah. but like I basically quit my life. And the reason I unplugged from everything is because I realized that if I kept plugging into the stuff around me, that I wasn't going to figure out what was true for me. And it was terrifying because, you know, I literally packed up all of my stuff. And this was really important because I maybe saw my parents for two or three days at a time, you know, for 20 plus years around the holidays. And I didn't know where to go per se, but I packed up as much as I could. I packed up my two dogs. I shut up for Christmas and I told them that I wasn't going to leave for a while. And this is the first time I'd lived under my parents' roof since I was 18 and a half. So I, I went there so that I could literally like turn down all the noise. And then I went and I sat in silence at a Vipassana for 10 days. So it's 10 days of silent meditation. And I where, where was this? Where did Vipassana is all over the world, but this one was in North Fork, which is right outside of Yosemite, close to Fresno. And I And what do you do? So 10 days. 10 days in silence. You take a vow of silence and you're meditating actively for 10 hours a day. And the rest of the day you're in silence with yourself in nature. And, and meditating, describe meditating. In so, this particular circumstance. So Vipassana is known, it's speculated that it's the type of meditation that was used by Buddha to achieve enlightenment. Yep. And the process is very much about like scanning the somatics of your body using your breath. Uh, it's all through your nose. And it's really about feeling the sensations that arise in your body, which are often called sankharas. And these are like stuck energies. And there is a huge idea of not holding on to seeking pleasure and avoiding pain and just being with it, knowing that it's temporary, like an itch. Yeah. If you don't scratch it, it's going to go away eventually. And it's the same thing as pleasure and pain, the, imperma the impermanence of feeling. Yeah. And so that was very influential for me in a lot of reasons. But one of the things that happened to me very early on, like day three out of 10, is I dissolved. Like you hear the idea of like dissolving into stardust. And here's me just in my own essence, in my own body, and I am part of everything. But this form that you see was not part of that. It was just me being 
you know, stardust in, in the midst of the cosmos. And then I came back in my body and I wouldn't, you know, you could talk to the teacher occasionally. Were there people around you? Or like who's? Yeah, there's usually, you know, depending on the size of the facility, I think this was 120 meditators. So the men and women are on separate sides. Yeah. And so you're in a room. You're in a large, yes, you're in a very large room when we're all meditating together. And yep. then you have separate accommodations for where you sleep. And then there's a separate accommodation for where they feed you. So Got it. every everything I encourage people, when I first heard about Vipassana, I was like, why would anyone want to not talk for te- eight days, 10 days? And even before going into it, people would say, can you do this? And I, I don't know. So meditating not, in your mind. In your body. Your body. More than your mind. I mean, we get so in the mind, but our body is this wonderful temple of where we hold so, so you have an much. internal dialogue while you're meditating the goal is really to get out of the internal dialogue and <sighs> just to allow things to flow through you uh and so there's people around you how close mm-hmm. are they i mean closer than you and i it would be like a person on a meditation cushion right here and a meditation cushion right here and then in front of you I are mean, you an indian style depending on how you meditate yeah, i couldn't even do that <laughs> I couldn't do that for 10 minutes. Yeah, well, maybe now this gives you an idea of how I can sit in this position. Uh, bizarre. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. but I so, was, so hold on a second. Yeah. So hold up. So you you go to sleep. What time do you go to bed? Like you go how many to bed hours? at 9 and you wake up at your first meditations at 4 a.m. 4 a.m.? Mm-hmm. So then you got, where do you, so you go eat breakfast first? No, you meditate first. First. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, then you. You have your own quiet time. You can't bring in any any writing utensils. So there's no writing. There's no reading. It's just you being with Obviously yourself. no phones, no, no nothing. No phones. You check in your phone. And I was sharing about the, you know, me dissolving. And I went to my teacher and I said, when this happens, what do I do? And their response was nothing. You just let it be. This was during the 10 days. So you can verbalize to the instructor. Yeah. You have specific windows of time when you can go and ask questions. And, you know, it was really profound for me because there's so much of an attachment to a feeling that we all have in this world. And that was a really beautiful lesson to not attach yourself to specific feelings because they're going to come and go. Right. And so that takes you out of presence when you're wanting a moment to be something other than what it is. Wow. All right. So keep going with this. So 10 days. Mm hmm. 10 days and... No, can you give people, hey, can you give nods to each other? Like, hey... Like, no, you're not even supposed to make eye contact or facial expressions. I didn't do a very good job with that. <laughs> yeah, because I'd be at least nodding at people. Hey, hey. Yeah. So an example of that is where we were, I uh, was doing intermittent fasting, so I wasn't eating the nightly meal. Mm. And during the nightly meal, I would walk up to this corner of the property and I would witness the most beautiful sunsets that I had really experienced and initially there was the part of me that wanted to share this with other people the part that wanted to go get other people to share this moment right. with yeah but i couldn't do that yeah so once i settled into that feeling i realized that i could just appreciate this for myself i didn't need anybody else to be there to say yeah that sunset's beautiful or wow how amazing is this so that was really powerful and because so that's I, ingrained in us to totally. want to experience stuff with other people. Hey, you mm-hmm. got to see this. Yeah. Look at this. Look at this. Look, right. And it doesn't mean that I don't still want to share those moments with other people, but it has given me the capacity to appreciate them just for me and the moment that I'm witnessing for myself. Unbelievable. All right. So was 
so this was, was this the turning point of your life, would you say? I certainly, yeah. It was, uh, it was the point where I made the decision to live for me. For you? For me. Nobody else. You know, I, I still live well, for other people, yeah, but I mean, like as far as the identity of who I'm seeing myself in the world, this was the time of which I stopped feeling like I needed to fit into the box that I had continued to try and check to be happy. And this is, Brenna, this is like, what, 99% of human beings walking planet Earth are in this box? Because mm -hmm, we've been told it's safe. We've been told that's safe. Yeah. When in essence, it's just the complete opposite because we're not actually going to be who we're designed to be. And when you're living out of alignment with yourself, it's no surprise that there are things that show up that don't feel good. I mean, things are going to show up that don't feel good in life. That's just the nature of being a human. Yeah. But there is so much more, the word disease, dis-ease. Dis-ease. And that shows up, I think, more than we discuss in health, right? Yeah. Like uh, Gabor Mate talks a lot about this, who's one of the leading trauma experts in the world, is especially in how we operate, we are looking at the symptoms. We are not focusing on what's causing them. Mm. And that's, I think, what we're seeing so much in the example of me having anxiety, right? Okay, well, let's just give you a pill for this. Right. Uh, that's not going to fix the anxiety. I want to tend to the root of the cause. And to do that, we really need to do the work on ourselves. And because we are so much wiser about who we are than anyone else. And so when we give away our sovereignty and our empowerment to who we are, to everyone around us, then it's no, it's no surprise that we feel disassociated or detached or alienated or lonely. Yeah, those are things that other people can support, but they cannot create for you. Exactly, Ugh, this is like crazy. It's like so profound. So keep going with this now. Let's just segue right into like what you what you actually do now, sure. how you help others, and what is like the percentage of people that come to you like they're all dealing with the same thing. Yeah, so I wanna also share with you kind of the path. Yeah, give me that. But I'm going to say a bit more about my Vipassana experience Please. because on day 10, you get your phone back and you have the opportunity to connect with the outside world. And that day I heard that COVID had made it to the United States and I heard about Kobe Bryant's death. Wow. So like two major, I think, events in our world happen simultaneously. And there was a part of me that was like, maybe I'll just go back here and stay. But then there's the part of me that knows that this work is done so that we can go out into the world with these new learnings and information and be of support. So, um, and so this is three, about three years ago that you did this. This is like when I totally quit my life. So now I'm going to backtrack eight years for you. Gotcha. So, um, eight years ago, I remember someone, I guess it, it was just like this invitation within myself to know my soul on a deeper level. Someone gave me the Tao Te Ching and I started reading that while learning to meditate. When I learned to meditate, I literally used one of those apps where it said, you're doing 60 seconds and 60 seconds felt like an eternity at that point. So yeah. I'm, you know, going to 10 days of silence. I started with one minute and I do feel like that's an important delineation because so many people hear these stories and they think I could never do that. Well, if I can, so can you. Um, so it started, the work started a long time the ago. The work started a long time ago. And what, what it really was, was I, I was always a curious person. And how long have you been with Adam? 
uh, we've been together. It'll be three years in February. Okay, three, okay. Yeah. So this is kind of when I was young, my curiosities were not fostered because of religion. So like an example would be, uh, you know, I when you're looking at a 3000 year timeline, dinosaurs don't make sense. Right sort of things. Yeah. And so these are some of the stifles that I I ran up against because I was like this doesn't make sense to me. And so like I really wanted to be able to explore uh these ideas that were coming up for me and I did that for certain points and then I just got in the machine of building a life and a career. Right. And so this was like a remembrance of that curiosity and like reacquainting myself with my intuition. So I started listening to a fair amount of like Alan Watts and Ram Dass and reading these different spiritual frameworks and mushrooms found me. I was not looking for them. It was not a seeking by any stretch of the imagination. And I didn't really have people I could talk to about it because it was not the narrative that we're seeing now. So it was just me developing a relationship with this earth-based medicine And I would sit in my room in deep meditation. And what happened is I started showing up in the world in a way where people would ask me, like, what's going on in your life? Things seem very different. And I would say, you know, I think it's meditation and mushrooms. And most people didn't want to hear about meditation. And so I would talk about what I was experiencing on my journeys. And then people would ask if I would show them. And that was really beautiful because what it created for me was this, like the ability to see it from multiple different perspectives. So I have my lens of what was happening for me. And then, uh, you know, some of the people that started coming to me because I live in San Diego were in the military and I never wanted to compromise livelihood. And so I started going down this rabbit hole of, is it tested for? And the answer right. is no. no. But simultaneously in that same rabbit hole, I was witnessing some of the emerging information that was coming from the Imperial College, uh, Johns Hopkins, talking about treatment-resistant depression, bulimia, smoking cessation, a lot of the ailments that we don't have answers for based on the model that we were working in. And we were seeing these results that were, you know, we couldn't understand why. We were seeing the results the way we were based on what this was. So when I started working with other individuals, what I got to witness, and you know, I know that you're a vet, yep. and being in the military, my dad was as well, there's a certain amount of your identity that's built for you. Mm-hmm. This is who you are. Yeah. And so to witness people meet themselves for the first time was very profound. And uh, So what I started to see is that this was a tool that was helping people meet themselves. And that's why there's an empowerment to it that I think supports in people being able to break out of some of the things that we haven't been able to support using the methods that were currently being used. So that was kind of the curiosity just snowballed in a way. I started sitting with as many medicines as I could in different medicine circles and I started to get this amalgamation of what psychedelics were yep. in an intentional way. Right. And through that, uh, it supported me in coming to the conclusion that like, I really needed to make a milestone change in my life. And for me to be able to do that, I needed to cut the cord. And that was that time that we were talking about is like really like severing the tie, taking myself out of the world that I lived in, and then could make a decision about how I wanted to plug back into it. And so that's the chapter that I'm in now. 
And that was where, so now you got us to where you did the 10 days, mm-hmm. right? And then coming out of that. So were you already helping people prior to that? Yes. So it was almost like a dual uh, experience as I was working my career and then supporting friends and being in circles. And it was just kind of like the the other me mm. in a lot of ways. So when did you do the final, What? how many years ago did you do the final cut where you're just, you're done with that whole it was two days after my Vipassana is I left my career. And they say, don't wait, you know, a month after expanded states to make major life decisions. They, they tell you yeah, that? Yeah, that's like, that's actually not an uncommon uh, thought. But I had been thinking about doing this for a very long time. And for <sighs> me, so I, I think that this is an important distinction, right? Yeah. So psychedelics had gotten me to the awareness that this was something that I felt like I wanted to do, but I didn't want to rely solely on an external source. Again, right. that is an external source. Yeah. So that's why I did the Vipassana so that this was all in my own agency. Got it. Okay. So there was there couldn't be anyone saying, well, you quit your career because you did a drug. And yeah. it's like, no, those supported me in getting into this awareness, but I took time to completely sit with myself in as deep as I possibly could to make a confirming decision of the direction I wanted to go. And the psychedelics, how many years prior to that were you doing those? Five. Five. Okay. So talk to me about those. Like, like what do they do? Because as I said in the beginning of the interview, mm-hmm. I have actually quite a few friends that are doing this yeah. regularly, if not daily, and said their life has changed completely. Um, meaning the way that their perception of not the perception, but the way they carry themselves in the world is so mm-hmm. much more relaxed and realizing that it's all just like, because these are high, strong, like anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. always worried about stuff. And and now he's like, just, I just, I, I, I'm, I have a calmness about me, yeah. a smoothness about me. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So I want to delineate a few things because yeah. psychedelics is a big word right it now. Is. And so there's the classic psychedelics, which is mushrooms, LSD, and DMT. And then another psychedelic that is widely discussed in the research is MDMA. Right. So uh, the classic psychedelics uh, have a very different experience than MDMA does. So right. uh, I'm, I'll am i try and delineate in the conversation. MDMA is basically, it, it, back in my day, was ecstasy. Ecstasy. Yeah, ecstasy. Yeah. Or now Molly. Yeah. Right. And also, I think it's important to name, and not everyone holds the same idea that I do, that like... I believe that recreational use of psychedelics, it's recreation. So the idea that things can only be therapeutic is we're pathologizing things. That, let's only use it if there's a problem. Right. But like optimization mm. is looking at something as a support to create a richer tapestry of your life. Right. Gotcha. So it's kind of like the idea of saying you should only eat healthy if you're sick. So uh, there is something very different, however, about intentionality. Mm. And that goes a long ways, especially with this work. So um, what happened after that was uh, I had been the type of, uh, how do psychedelics work is the yeah. question. Yep, yep. So um, Break it in, down. in the therapeutic c- container, it's it really is very different than in like a, a recreational container. Yeah, so we'll get the recreational stuff out. Yeah. So I think, so, I think a lot of us know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so in the therapeutic container ecstasy. and working with a, a guide or a facilitator, 
really it's about developing a trusting relationship with somebody because I look at this as soul work. So you are most likely going to be going to some of the parts of yourself with this individual that maybe you don't even know are there. So to be able to move into the fear, move into the shame, move into maybe the repressed memories, it's really important to have somebody that is walking alongside you on that journey of which you feel safe. So that's where safety and security becomes really foundational. The way that I work and that you'll see in many of the therapeutic models is to really turn down the external stimuli. So that's why you'll see the eye shades and the headphones, the playlists, or sometimes, you know, depending on the medicine, you'll see people playing music. And I think what that really supports is turning the lens inward. So much of what we've been talking about in this conversation is how the external... right influences tell us who we are in this world so what i see with this work is the capacity for us to tap in and turn that lens around love it so moving from the outside in to the inside out and when you're able to have that agency or sovereignty in yourself who am i then i think there's an ease that comes with that yeah because if you have more of an understanding of who you are, then you know how you want to show up in this world instead of trying to show up so other people will accept you. And this is not universal. I don't believe anything is universal. But uh, one of the things that I have seen with people in this work is that the pendulum, you know, it swings, but it gets closer to the middle, right? So the things that would typically maybe create more of a stir, a reaction, then you have that center of which you can tap into your own, like your own calm. And especially with microdosing, yeah, like microdosing, very accessible. I think a lot of people are doing it for optimization because what they find is the things that used to ruffle their feathers don't ruffle them as much. It's not nearly as big of a deal. It's like, wow, how much energy am I putting into like creating this big scenario when really there's a a recognition that there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. Yes. And we spend so much energy on trying to control stuff that's not ours to control. And so when you start looking at like what is actually mine to control and focusing on that, then I, I feel it supports in creating a way of being in the world where you don't feel like you have to put your energy in places that it's not going to be aligned for you. So that I I know that there's a lot there. So yeah. I'm gonna pause. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it like it's like not sweating the small stuff. Mm-hmm. In essence, yeah. let's we'll sum it up. Yeah, because it's all and it's all small stuff. Literally all of it. Sure. So anyway, so get give me give me some scientific stuff about because the other guy that was on here, Jeremy, um, mm-hmm. he talked about these as well, and he got deep into the fact of what it does for the actual brain, like neuroplasticity of the brain. Yeah. Can can you go in on that a little bit? Yeah. So um. I'm going to go more holistic Perfect. on this. So science and research, incredibly important. Uh, classic psychedelics are working on the 5H2A receptors. We're even learning that they can cross the blood-brain barrier, which means that they're diving into the parts of the brain that we, we're not even sure what they're doing. The honest truth is we have these ideas, but it's, I think, much more than what we're able to study currently. Um, neuroplasticity is basically like Michael Pollan describes it as you are are looking at a mountain of which there's all the deep grooves of people that have been skiing there. And mm. then all of a sudden you get a fresh coat of snow. 
So you have the capacity. It's almost like a river or a tributary, right? The the longer we feed energy in a certain direction, the more that's just the path that the water is going to go. Yeah. So this is our opportunity to start fresh, and the brain will want to go back to baseline in many cases. Yep. So that's where the neuroplasticity and the window of neuroplasticity is really important to start creating change in your life, whether that's through action steps or awareness around thought patterns, having a coach or uh, integration support around it can be really profound because you have someone there that's helping you along the way. It doesn't mean you can't do it on your own. You absolutely can. Yeah. But that's where like the brain comes into it. Now, <clears throat> here's where things get a little bit different because I understand that for us to have widespread systematic change, we need research. Yes. So it's course. super important. Always. There's so much around that. <clears throat> and for me, I feel really blessed because a lot of the people that have found me are actually educators, researchers, scientists, doctors, people who are interested and have seen what this does on the brain. Yeah. So they're when, already educated on it. They are deeply educated and they want the experiential piece for themselves. Ah, wow. And so it's fascinating for me to bear witness to it because when we go into ceremony, I spend a ton of time giving the brain all of the answers that it wants. And then we tell the brain that the time with the medicine, it gets to go on vacation. We it gets to pick wherever it wants to go because it works so hard. All of the time. All the time. All the time. Especially now with social media, the phone. Thousand percent. So it's an intentional, like the brain gets to take the day off. But what we're seeing is everything's happening in the brain. But when you are in these like journeys, you realize that that's not, we're limiting ourselves by looking just at the brain mm. because so much becomes active in the body, the somatics. We now know that most of the trauma is stored in the body. No kidding. So if we're trying to fix it by continuously re-traumatizing the situation by talking about it from a cognitive level, it's not supportive in releasing it where it's being stored. So go, keep going with that. We mean stored in the body, not, not the brain? Totally. There, There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score and it really like changed the great it changed the game on how we look at trauma. What did the body what? The body Keep, keeps the score. Keeps the score, okay. Yeah, so we have for a long time this is why cognitive behavioral therapy is something that, you know, it can be supportive for some, but I meet many people who are like I've been doing therapy for 15-20 years and it supported me in some ways and I think therapy is amazing, but I think we really need to understand that by focusing solely on the brain, we're missing the whole. Mm. So I see psychedelics as a way to bring more systems online. So the systems that I look at are the mind, yep. the body, the heart, and the soul. And when you meet these different parts of yourself and then you can attune yourself to your whole being, then the way that you can engage with who you are changes dramatically, right? I know you're super in tune with your body. Mm -hmm. You know when something's off. Yes. But I bet you know people who like, they don't have a relationship with their body Not, like yeah. you do. Right. And so they're just walking around kind of uh, unconscious about that relationship. So here's our opportunity to use this tool through psychedelics to bring more parts of ourselves into the equation. And that's how you have... How I look at it is this. When we do things rationally, then we question things. We often look for people to um, confirm them yep. for us. When you orient to your heart, and depending on what your orientation is, then at least you know where your intentions are. 
you can question your intentions in your mind. Right. You don't question your intentions in your heart. And then when you get into, you know, call it the soul, call it your intuition, call it your true nature, there's a clarity and a, a very profound knowing there that you don't need confirmation from anybody else. It's just your truth. And that's- Is that your gut instinct? Is that what you call that? Yeah. Gut instinct, yeah. intuition. Those are great ways to, when you have that gut instinct hit, right? Yeah. You just know. You don't need to go out and get confirmation. When you think about something, you're like, oh, this is an interesting idea. What does anybody else think? How? Right. Let's yeah, talk it yeah. over. And I'm not saying that that's not valuable too. What I'm saying is what if we can actually tune into all of our being instead of just our mind? And then who do we become in this world? And so it's fascinating. I'm loving this. The gut thing. This mm -hmm. is a real thing. Where did that gut instinct come from like it's actually in our gut yeah like the feeling yeah i mean you know about this the, there's the gut brain connection yeah for sure and if you look at your chakra centers there is like different connections to the parts of our body so your your gut is sometimes where you look at as your like solar plexus your your identity yourself so it really depends on the philosophy or the framework and i think it's important to know how that shows up for you and to really like tune into it like a muscle just like you go to the gym to work out, yeah. tuning into your intuition and listening to it and doing small things that can help it feel seen and heard. So when it does show up, follow through with it. Follow through with it. Whatever that may be. And that's different for many people. Like uh, One of the easiest things I think we can do to trust our intuition is like if we think about somebody, reach out. And, and But reach out without the need for the feedback to come back because that's like the loop that we get stuck in is if they don't reach back out to us that I didn't trust my, my intuition wasn't mm. right. But like just trusting yourself, continuing to build that trust in who you are and then you become more in your agency in this world. And I think based on a lot of the conversations that we've had around this, we don't have as much agency as we think we do. Right. And so where is it in your control to create more of that for yourself? Oh man, this is this is good stuff. This is great. Um, okay, keep keep going here with now the what is how does psychedelics work to then change this to like you know what, let's go through like when you have a client, mm -hmm. give me a journey of a not I'm gonna say typical because they're not they're not nobody's typical, right? But your your traditional yeah. Journey. Yeah. With a new client. Yeah. Let's so go through that. When someone finds me. Um, so how do they find you? That, just, this is a whole part of the surrender that I went through is really just. Um, are you on social media with your business? No. 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 I know. It's crazy. Not at all. Uh -uh. Nope. Zero. No. I have a website. Yeah. And most of my business is through referrals and I am posted on like some, there are some places where you can look for guides or facilitators. It's, you know, because this is still pretty much underground. Yeah, it is. So right. needing to say, I am here having a conversation about what I do. So it's not like I'm trying to hide right. from all of it. But simultaneously, I really find that people finding me is very much in alignment. So like you found Absolutely. me in this conversation and yeah. I found you through a referral. So that's just like the chain of trust that's is true. already you guys, built. You guys referred to me, right? Mm -hmm. Who referred you again? James. James. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So this is, this is my energetic connection in the world. And so wow. when someone finds me, we have an initial conversation to just like talk about what they're bringing to the table and what their journey has led to. 
And if we decide we're going to move forward, then the process is, um, you know, I call it a constellation. How do you know when someone's, can you tell when somebody's like closed minded, like they're not going to be a good client to say, you know what? I don't think you're ready for this. Does that uh, happen? Does it happen? There are people that I might not be the right fit for, mm. or it might not be the right time in their life. You and can feel that. Yeah. We'll have a conversation about it. The biggest thing that I find with this work in general is the media hype has almost portrayed this as a panacea. You take this thing and it's going to, and they're not talking about the work that goes into it. And it's like, you take this thing and it's going to change your brain. You have to be an active participant in the process for that to happen. So I don't feel like I am the right fit for somebody who is just looking to be fixed. I am not willing uh, to do the work. This is totally. And this is where the coaching comes in. Because I used to be a rescuer, right? I was in the drama triangle as the rescuer. And I realized that was attracting the people that wanted to be rescued. And that's not going to change their life. But when people are ready to change their life, not have someone else change their life. Mm. When people are ready for their life to be changed based on how they're going to show up for themselves, those are the people that this can be incredibly transformational for. And so when someone finds me, then we do a constellation, which is really like, an, a, let's talk about all the facets of your life, not just like the conversation that you started with, yeah. getting to know your childhood story, your relationship to your parents and your siblings, how your world This view. is stuff that you do. Totally. And then it's also the lifestyle stuff. Like what's your relationship to sleep, to food, to your body? What's your social uh, engagement like? Just not just looking at so much of how we try and fix things is looking at the problem, not yeah. looking at where it came from mm. and, or looking at the mechanisms that are perpetuating it. So I want to look at all of it. And from that conversation, then we have two um, sessions, which are kind of like coaching sessions that talk about what's showing up through this process. And you ask really good questions. I feel like I love to pull threads. You know, I'll find this like little tiny thread. I'm like, well, let's explore this a little more. Yeah. And you can really come to some beautiful awarenesses within yourself, even just in that process. So there's two sessions, three sessions total prior to the journey. The other thing that I do want to name about this is we are working in consciousness. And so mm. much of uh, our life is in the unconscious. We just haven't Isn't gotten there yet. Yes. And so what I see in this work that's really cool is when you make the decision to do this, it's almost like that part of yourself that you haven't explored is like, ooh, there's an invitation. And so things will start to show up in your life that are, I believe, the parts of ourselves that were ready to be seen. And so that's why there is a preparation process, is to allow those parts to start showing up. Um, the journey itself is kind of a, a mini retreat. You unplug from your life for 40 hours. And the evening before. All right. So hold on. Hold on. So you had the two or three sessions where you you talking it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And then now are you getting into the actual. Yep. OK. What do you call it, the treatment? The I call it a, a journey or a ceremony. But journey it's all or the a ceremony. journey. But the ceremony itself. This other stuff leading up to it. Are you doing the psilocybin um, 
mushrooms at that point? Some people microdose. M- microdose in okay. preparation. And for microdose, it. explain what microdose means. So microdosing is a subperceptual amount of uh, psychedelic. And you can microdose on multiple different and psychedelics. Mu- psychedel- but you're talking about mushrooms we'll specifically. We'll talk about mushrooms specifically okay, okay, gotcha. in this conversation. So what we see is uh, 250 milligrams or below is the threshold for microdosing. Uh, so that's a tiny amount. You're not meant to trip. You're not meant to have any perceptual changes. It's just running in the background. So one of the things that like I had mentioned before, this is very much about intention. So the people who come to me for microdosing often have very different reasons that they're doing it. So creatives, for example, yeah, right. they may use it to be more in their creative space. Um, the number one demographic during COVID that was I was finding the most support for them through microdosing was working mothers working at home with their kids at home in school. And they would say, this is the only thing that allows me to be present for all of it. So helping them be present, be present for all of it. Because I often find that it turns down a lot of the static and the noise that's going on. And it just allows you to be with what is great. And this is what all I've heard from it. Mm-hmm. Like all my friends that have, uh, that I know about people that have been on the podcast that do it. This is yeah. exactly what they said. It turns out all the noise mm-hmm. and they're actually present. Yep. It's huge. Which is fascinating to me. Presence goes so far because we're not trying to change the past. We're not trying to fix the future. This is what's happening right now. And if you actually like. Enjoy the moment. Sit, t- Enjoy totally. the moment. And even if it's not necessarily the most enjoyable moment, at least you're in it. At least you're, at least you're alive in that right. moment. Right. Because we're all just looking forward to something. Can't yeah. wait till this. Can't wait till that. Going to do this. Going to do that. Wait. Okay, next week. And we're going to be. This, we're all looking forward to the next thing when we're not even. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's talk about right now. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that that's. um. That's also where gratitude can be a really powerful practice. Totally. It's like be grateful for what you have right now and check in with those things. It's not to take away the importance of having visions or the idea of maybe manifestation or prayer. I think that all of these are, they, they love to play together. And if we utilize all of these different tools for our own well-being, then it's incredibly transformational. Incredibly. So that's also where um, the... Preparation, I think, is important because for me, I don't want people to think I'm going to take a psychedelic and my life is going to be dramatically different because of it, just the psychedelic. I want them to be able to build a giant toolkit for their life of things that are applicable on a day-to-day basis. That's why microdosing is super accessible, right? right? right. Because you microdose you know, maybe four days a week and it's like a supplement or like going to the gym. You take it one, you go to the gym once and you might, you know, you might feel good. You might be sore the next day, right. probably will be. Yeah. It might keep you from going there. Same thing can happen with microdosing. You may be very raw and emotionally vulnerable, but at least you went there yeah. and you felt something. And so the more you do it, the more it just becomes the tapestry of who you are. Uh, and you can definitely tell when you're stepping away from these things that are supportive. And I look at all of these things in life, sleep. 
right? Yeah. How important is having a consistent it's sleep schedule? It's everything. So you have a bad night's sleep and how much does it change the next day for you? Yeah. So it's really about getting to know the patterns and habits and how can we support creating better patterns and habits and tools leading up to these, what are often described as milestone events for people. So um, that's where the preparation process is also part of the equation for me yep. as, as a facilitator. Uh, and then the if we're talking about higher dose journeys, those are generally going to be... Um, I'm going to actually back up a little bit. Yep. One of the beautiful things about mushrooms is it's a super multifunctional tool. Yeah. It's from nature, 100%. So uh, there's no toxicity. If you look at the toxicity scale of things that we consume on our daily basis, it's at the very bottom. And there that includes everything. We're, everything. Everything. Water, what we're Tylenol, eating. Tylenol, everything. Tylenol. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's no overdosing. And no this. one will question any of the medications that they're beginning, Xanax, all the anti-anxiety, anti-depressions. No one will question that. You can't. I mean, you can look at the studies and the research. I, there have been... Uh, like what I'm, saying, what I'm saying is people will take all that stuff. And look at the side effects and of And the it. side effects are like, like on every one of them, death is a side effect uh-huh. out of 150 side effects. But no one will question that. But when it comes to psychedelics, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I mean, that's a whole lot of another rabbit hole of conversation around (laughs) when psychedelics were, you know, I mean, there was a chapter of which these were having a resurgence in our culture. And some of the ideas that come from working with psychedelics, you know, like myself getting out of the matrix. Yeah. Getting out of the matrix. Was a part of it. And so... um, so these are that there's were, no were tox- they were they around a long time ago and then went away like psychedelics no. like this no so there's this something the called the stoned ape theory and the idea is that fungi has been around longer than almost anything else on this planet yep it's gonna go longer than almost anything else on this planet and there is a theory that says that through the use of psychedelic mushrooms the human brain evolved to be able to have language wow so going back that far that far but we don't we can't confirm that right but these are just theories that are out there they've been used in ceremony you can look at caves and see mushrooms you go to archaic sites in different parts of the world i mean they're everywhere so these have been around for a very long time they've been used in ceremony for a very long time it's just in our western culture that has not been part of it gotcha and you know that's a bigger social conversation about delineating from you know the way that we have been in this world but as it pertains to this particular time for us is um I really believe that there is a tremendous amount of support that psychedelics can create for people that are stuck in uh, the, I've been on antidepressants for all my life and they aren't working, or I'm finding that I have intense anxiety and being in the world. It's not a cure-all. There isn't one cure-all, but these certainly are a different option for people to explore if they're looking to try something different than the the medical model, the, that, me, the big pharma model. model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're they're both really important. 
is to allow both to coexist and for people to have choice about what works for them instead of this is the option that you have. Uh, and, and, so, and so you had said that, sorry, sorry, uh -huh. um, leading up to the, what was it, the event or the? Yeah, well, we'll call it um, the ceremony weekend. The ceremony, okay. It's 40 hours. So 40 the, hours. The evening before is like I shared with you, we're going to sit down. I'm going to make you a meal. We're going to break bread. Break bread. And Yay. then we're going to give the brain all of the stuff that it needs to know to go offline for a little while. Um, and really, it's meant to kind of co-create a container of safety and energetic presence. Um, go to sleep. The next morning, we wake up. Often, we'll spend some time in nature. I like to invite doing a release ceremony. So the night before with the breaking bread thing, are we doing psychedelics at that point? Nope. No. Nope. No. Psychedelics come day two. Day two. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, that's the the medicine day. And you know the the day is really meant to turn down all the external noise and, and So where are you now? Like where did you meet at a place? What what is yeah, this? I work in what I call a concierge style. So it's really dependent on the individual. It's not for me to know what's going to be an environment that's going to make you feel safe. So like I appreciate the fact that some people say come into an office, but there's a certain energy that comes with going into yeah, yeah. a therapist's office. For some people that may be really supportive. For other people, maybe it won't. So I work in whatever environment feels most supportive for the individual I'm working with. Got it. So to give you some ideas, often people will get Airbnbs in natural environments like Joshua Tree or Big Bear. I've worked out of someone's RV. I've worked in a yurt on the top of a mountain i work out of people's homes so there's lots of options so, so if you go to like the do, do you camp with them do you get in a tent or? i i i'm not with them but well, yeah. yeah but, but you're in a tent over here they're in a tent uh-huh yeah that's the the yurt and the rv <laughs> were atypical for sure but yeah i mean we're just like in a very serene environment and it's um you know, again, this is part of me wanting to empower people for them to know that this is their journey. I'm there to support it. I'm not here to tell them what healing looks like for them. Right. Because that's a dangerous path. Yes. Is to keep seeking someone else to tell you how you're going to heal. Mm, which is which is traditional therapy. It's traditional. Right? I think it's Western yeah. medicine. And, you know, I have many friends that have gone from one modality to another modality to another modality. And they keep feeling like, nothing is working it's because you're looking for something to be the answer outside of you outside of yourself yeah that's what this all revolves around mm -hmm. that's what i see in this so you know we've talked about the things that people come to this work with and what i feel is the part of it that is so different from how we are orienting is really it's meant to turn the scope of who we are and like see things from a different perspective. Mm. And that can be sometimes challenging, right? When you have to take responsibility for some of the ways that you've shown up in the world. Or in my case, the example of the life that I thought of who I was that I created for myself. But I would not, and as hard as that was, I would not have gone back. And for many people, that's the experience that they have through this is as as much as this is work i want that to be like very clear, clear yeah yeah there can be these incredibly blissful euphoric experiences you can touch the divine you can be part of it all and then simultaneously you can sit with your deepest shame and judgment 
for yourself and really like have to be in the feelings of grief that you have not processed because we've brushed it under the rug. Mm, a lot of stuff comes up. Oh, all of it comes up. Wow. And, you know, that's where the whole idea of the holding things in the body is you have to feel it to heal it. The issues in the tissue. So when you start addressing these parts of yourself, then there is, but, but here's the thing. We are in the container of which that's the expectation. Whatever shows up, we're going to meet it. And I believe one of the things that I've heard healing defined as is wholeness is becoming whole within ourselves. So I believe that many of us are fragmented because there, there are parts of ourselves that somewhere along the way we have been told are not okay. Right. And so we judge them, we shame them, we think they're bad or whatever the sentiment may be. Uh, and when we can start looking at them with a more compassionate lens and start to maybe not love them, but give them love and try and understand them, then those are parts of the unconscious that are coming up and they are the reasons that we're reactive. They're the reasons that we show up in situations and we don't show up in a way that feels in alignment with who we are or our decision-making process. And to be able to see them for what they are changes the game incredibly. So as it pertains to looking at traditional therapy, I often view it as taking a flashlight to what we think our life is. And we're looking around with the flashlight and sometimes we hit the mark. This is like turning the floodlights on. Yeah. And you can see it all. And that's where you can start forming connections that you weren't able to see before. Now, going back to what we see in the brain, right? There's these very famous images of the brain on psychedelics and there's right. all of yeah. these new connections. And that's exactly what you can... That is one of the things that can happen in these journeys is you can start to form these new connections that you didn't see before. And they almost feel like, how did I not see that? It's just whatever the conditions were that created them, you weren't able to, to put that forward. Like, I'll give you an example in my own life. Yeah, right? give it to me. So when I was 13, I developed asthma. And I spent my entire life thinking I was an asthmatic. And in one of my journeys, I realized that asthma was a defense mechanism that I had used because I didn't know how to tell my coaches I didn't want to push harder. Mm. So I created the somatic response that would make people think, oh, she needs to stop. And I did. I did. Wow. But for me to say, I can't push any harder, you know, coaches are like, you got this, you can push harder. So here's a mechanism that I created within myself. So I spent my life thinking I was an asthmatic. I've never had asthma since. Wow. And I'm not saying that's the same for everybody, but there are these like realizations and it makes all the sense in the world. You know, I'm a 13 year old girl. My dad's my coach. He's telling me to run faster and I'm exhausted. So how can I tell him I can't anymore? I can do it with my body. Wow. And so give me some, give me a couple of, of, can you give me a story or two about some journeys that have just been so profound for people? Like they just came in, they were the massive anxiety and the, and now they're just this thriving. Can you give me a, yeah, a success absolutely. story or two? Sure. I mean, I can give you many. I know um, you can hit me with a couple, like one, at least let's, let's get, let's get a couple out there. Cause so I'm fascinated by this. Yeah. There's one that's coming to mind right now for someone I worked with and I have 
so much respect for him because he's older, right? And this has been- Define older. He's in his 70s. Oh, wow. So this is like the identity he's had in the world where- he had generalized anxiety disorder, meaning like wake up in the morning and anxiety was present first thing. Like this is it. I'm anxious. Just being able to like his, his partner traveled quite a bit and he wasn't able to do the traveling as much as he wanted to simply because the anxiety was too much, you know? So they were almost living, they were allowing each other to live the lives that felt right for them. And in his journey, he had a really hard journey. He had what people would refer to as ego death. And that's when you basically dissolve. You are no longer who you think you are. And it was a hard journey to be with. But what happened was his generalized anxiety went away. And now anxiety, which is a very important emotion I want to name. There are times when being anxious is important. It's an, it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. But now he has anxiety around situations that are understandably things that would cause anxiety, right. but the generalized anxiety is no longer his baseline, which is huge because if your entire life you're spent like, oh, I'm anxious just-, just from the morning till night. And so this has really just allowed him to travel more, to get better sleep, get better rest, and really like being a better relationship with himself. And, you know, there's the idea of a bad trip. That's one of the reasons that people are like, I don't want to do this. What if I have a bad trip? Right. And a bad trip means like, like where you're, it's, it goes the opposite way. Yeah. You're freaking out. Yeah. Well, that is usually a byproduct of not having the right set or setting, yep. which is the mindset or the environment that you're in. And that's the reason that all of the things that I'm talking about in the preparation are intentional. Got it to create the best set and setting for the individual to do this work. So that would be an example of anxiety. I, you know, like I have seen people that have decided that like they're, they want to sing. I have a story of a woman I worked with and she is like top button. She is, she's a powerhouse in, in her profession. And that comes with a lot of pressure. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. And after this journey, which was very somatic with her, one of the things that she took up was, um, pole dancing as a a way of getting exercise and like being in her body and really like allowing herself to move in a very fluid way because her journey was very much about like letting this energy out of her body in a multitude of different ways. And she realized she was just holding it all inside and thinking like, I need to be, I need to be a rock. I need to be firm. And then really what her body wanted is like, let's have a little movement here. Let's move this energy through us. And it has changed the her relationship with her husband dramatically and that was a huge part of what she like came into this around was i feel like we're at an inflection point and i need to know what the future looks like and a lot of what was showing up was about his role and she was able to see her role and because she looked at her role and started focusing on that there was an organic nature of reconnection that happened in their marriage. Probably a masculine, feminine energy type thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which is pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. So those are just a couple of examples that I think are real life examples of people. And what's what What would you say the percentage of the people that come to you are on the, the going the other route of some form of medication that a doctor has prescribed them to get to be the magical pill? 
Literally. Uh, I would say 50%. 50%. Have, are currently on or have been on and are wanting to get off. So 50% would be, uh, I think, a solid estimate. And what would you say in our society as a whole? What's the percentage of people that are on prescription medication of some sort for, for let's go, let's go anxiety or depression? I don't know the statistics. I would just be naming what would, a number. What, what would be a guess? Do you think I it's close say, to 50? I would say probably 30%. 30%? Yeah. Yeah. That would be a guess. I, I'm not sure if that's accurate, though. And now this is obviously going higher and higher as we go on in time is would you say that's a fair statement i i believe when you look at the statistics of let's just use the united states and how medicated we are in comparison to the rest of the world right and there's a lot of ideas of what we could look at as why that's happening but also looking at the mortality rates and the uh, reports of mental health issues there's a, a disconnect by how successful that is for the ailments that we're we're seeing. And so I'm not saying psychedelics are the answer. I think that that's a much bigger conversation that we need to look at within our society. But I think that this is an opportunity for us to offer another option for people. And, you know, unfortunately, the idea of take this thing and fix me is very prevalent and people don't necessarily want to do the work. But you know, when you can look at yourself and be like, wow, like, I I think that one of the biggest ailments we suffer is a lack of self-love. And yeah, you said that earlier. And when I, you I, can start looking at yourself and loving yourself, you're going to make different decisions about how you show up for you. And tell me, why why is, why have we gotten away from self-love? Is, or has it always been that way? Is that just a human nature thing? Uh, well, I mean... I don't know if it's a human nature thing, but I do believe much of what we have been taught is love comes from external sources. Like we are loved if someone else loves us. Yeah. And it's kind of like there are so many things that people desire. And if you start giving it to yourself first, then you're not going to need it from external sources. Mm. And that insert whatever thing that you want to feel more of in your life, if you can show up for yourself and provide that, then there's an energetics there of which more of it's going to start showing up for you. And I know you and I have talked quite a bit about energy in our previous conversation. It's like, what is the energy that you're starting from within? How are you charging your own batteries? And so we're going to land this plane on self-love then. Let's do it. So self-love, where does someone that's watching and listening right now Give me something they can practically do without, which, by the way, can you say your website? Yeah. Uh, my website is journeyintopsychedelics.com. So they have to Google how to spell psychedelics. Yes. Okay. Yes. They have to work. They have to work. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to do a little work. Yeah. And I encourage people to educate themselves as well. Yeah. Like that's a huge part of it uh, that I'm seeing in the psychedelic space is people are just like trusting everybody and i really feel like education is a huge part of any endeavor especially like a major life endeavor that you want to select for yourself so self-love what are practical tools that people can do that will leave them with on this podcast some practical things that they can start focusing on Mm -hmm. to start just loving who they are yeah so the there were two things that i started with when i went on this journey with myself the first is like like i said i i was a meditator but i started taking my meditation into mantra and prayer and that was super transformational so the way i started my day is you know sitting with myself and feeling what was present but the very first thing i said to myself 
intentionally every single day, and I still do, is I love you. Mm. Not out loud. It's what I say to me. It's not for anybody else other than me. And like that has transformed, and I have added other things that I feel are important for my own journey that I need to hear from myself. And so it's knowing what's important for you to hear from you and saying that to yourself every single day, even when you don't feel it, especially when you don't feel it. Especially when you don't feel it. Yeah. And the second one, and this one's a little bit more of an external expression, but like I took a dry erase marker and I wrote on my bathroom mirror, I am love. And that was the first thing I'd see. So it's really engaging with myself in the morning in a loving way. And those were the things that I needed to do. I, you know, I've met people that have things that they wear, right? Like a some a bracelet or have something close to their bed that is a way of which they can like see that item and that is a symbol of self-love for them. So it's I think the way we talk to ourselves and the way we treat ourselves. Are you treating yourself in a loving way? And what does that look like for you? And those are questions. I think that talking to yourself is a simple thing that anyone can can start doing. Absolutely. What about gratitude? That's another part of the morning. When oh, you practice. said prayer, what, 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 how do you? Because um, a lot of my listeners are Christians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're all about. Pr- we're all about prayer. Like yeah. we pray morning. I think every all breakthrough um, is predicated before you know, by prayer. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, you know, coming from my upbringing, I had deviated from prayer for a long time. And then I started reckoning the importance of prayer and praying to whatever feels really connected for me. And so during my prayer, I, you know, I pray for the things that I feel uh, are really important for me to hear for myself, setting the stage. Um, and then I pray for people in my life in a meta way. So like my family, the people that I am connected to that are far away, the people that are part of my community here. And then I pray for the people I haven't met yet. And I pray for how I'm going to show up when I do. And then I practice forgiveness, which I think is a huge part Ah. of all of it. Um, You know, that's, I think uh, the duality of self-love is also being able to forgive yourself. So I forgive myself every day. Um, I forgive those who have hurt me every day and I forgive the things I see in society that are not in alignment and how I'm going to show up for that. So that is my, that is my prayer sequence, uh, Love it. every day. And so love that that's, um, and then after that is when I start to do my readings and my writings, but the first thing I write is my gratitudes and ah. yeah. So, I mean, I dedicate an hour minimum every day to my own personal setting the stage for is this first thing I, in the morning first thing in the morning first how, thing in the morning how i want to show up in the world and it's been transformational but again it's creating the time to show myself i care enough like i want to dedicate the time for me and if i'm giving myself an hour every single day that's that's, that's a, a big it's huge yeah it's like i this is an act of self-love and that's the way that i do it for myself self-love ladies and gentlemen this was amazing. I really love this. Love the way you yeah. tied it all together. It was so informational, um, educational, inspiring. Um, Brenna, and I'm, I was pronouncing it so well in the beginning, Begauer. Gebauer. Gebauer. Gosh <laughs> yeah. darn it. Brenna Gebauer. You got it. 
I reversed the B and the G. Gebauer, <laughs> Brenna, this was absolutely yeah. amazing. We'll have all of our stuff uh, on the podcast, like how to contact you in case somebody wants to come down the journey with you and, yeah. and self-discover who they are. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time. I absolutely love this. It's been an honor. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Real Deal Talk, ladies and gentlemen. That's a wrap. Let's go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 